Before I start, I want to deal with the elephant in the room. Uh, my wife got a wonderful vegetable slicer for Christmas. I was the first one to use it. So if you see a bandage on my finger, now you know why. Uh, it doesn't hurt. I'm not making a mess up here. So if you can just ignore it, we'll be good. I do want to say one thing uh, to uh, Sam. Josh is not here. I would talk to him too. But I'm a little concerned because so almost since the Song of Solomon, and then the book of Revelation, and then the series on David, a sinner, a sinner after God's own heart, I've been opening up the, the uh, worship guide to the place where we have the sermon, and there will be text, 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 and space for one note. And uh, I'm concerned that with the, today, I don't know if I can do this much, Sam. <laughs> All right. I want to thank Ryan for his call to worship this morning. Where are you, Ryan? There. Uh, thank you. That was, it spoke to my heart, and it also stole from my sermon. Uh, but that's okay. We're going we're gonna to duplicate here. Today, if you don't know, is New Year's Eve, or New Year's Day, 2023. Many people will use this day to embark on a self-improvement regimen, the notorious an often ill-fated New Year's Day resolution. Lose weight, quit smoking, get more exercise, reduce screen time, improve your work and life balance, get a better job, and ascend the social ladder. I expect that some resolutions won't last the day. Others may die a long, slow, lingering, painful death by tomorrow. Some, a very few, will produce lasting change. As Christians, we're not immune to the desire for self-improvement. I've often resolved to pray harder, to read the Bible more regularly, to be a better father and husband, and to stop making puns. But if I did all that, you wouldn't recognize me. So what is it that produces lasting change? How do you go from I want to be to I am? Please turn with me to the book of Romans, chapter 12, verse 1. I'll admit, this is a familiar passage, but it's familiar because we need to hear it so much. Would you stand with me as I read from God's Word? The Apostle Paul writes, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, I cannot change people's hearts. I can't even change my own heart. But I pray that the same Holy Spirit that caused these words to be written, who has preserved them down through the ages and brought them to us today in a form that we can understand, Lord, would you engrave these words upon our hearts, upon my heart. 
Fill us with that spirit that we may know and love and enjoy your mercies. Through Christ our Lord. Amen. There's a place south of Asheville, North Carolina, that is one of my favorite places on earth. The beauty of the Shining Rock and Middle Prong Wilderness areas first captured me when I was a teenager. The rocks that give the wilderness its name are a large formation of milky white quartz on top of a ridge. You can see it for miles. Think of a block of quartz about the size of a city block. When I say large, I mean large. One of my favorite memories is is of sitting on top of that rock watching rivers of clouds spill over the mountaintops and into the valleys in the east while the sun sank in the west. An unreal moment. Absolutely beautiful. The view is breathtaking. It also drives home just how large this wilderness area is. The wilderness encompasses 48 square miles. Miles, not acres. To give you an idea of how large that is, that's about the, the same amount of land that you would find between Kimberton, Collegeville, Schwenksville, and uh, Phoenixville. Draw, draw, draw a rectangle six miles wide and eight miles high. You've got it. That may not sound like such a big deal. I mean, you can drive from Kimber, you can walk from Kimberton to Phoenixville. But this is a wilderness area. It's full of mountains. Rivers, creeks, gaps, balds, with the exception of one trail. The words that could best be used to describe the the terrain there would be steep, steeper, and vertical. When you enter the wilderness, there are no roads, no signs, no cell service. There are trails, but they're not marked and they're not maintained. There's no McDonald's, no convenience stores. No toilets. There are no charging stations for your cell phone or GPS. The goal when you enter the wilderness area is to hike the top of Shining Rock, enjoy the view, and then hike back out, exiting the park, preferably in an area that contains your car. It's unbelievably easy to get lost there, especially if you depend upon your gut for direction, as in the trail was here just a moment ago usually followed by, this is the way, I'm sure of it. That particular statement only added four hours to a 90-minute hike the first time I took my brother and a friend up to the rock. Measured on the scale of misery, that trip definitely qualified as an adventure. At times like that, it takes a special kind of motivation to push through the fatigue and the disillusionment and pain to keep going. For me, the promise of beauty, the hope of a hot, strengthening meal, and the lure of a warm sleeping bag helped keep me going on that trip. But the Shining Rock Wilderness is not the only wilderness I've been in. Life itself is full of uncertainty. There are times when we don't know where to go or how to get there, which way to turn. Ways that looked safe from a distance full of unexpected obstacles or dangers. The path that seems so safe and so inviting can lead to destruction. There are times when not even the promise of beauty, the scent of food, 
or the hope of rest can keep us going. We need something more. We find that in this text. This verse marks a turning point in the book of Romans. For the previous 11 chapters, Paul has been mapping out a theme. The gospel is the power of God for salvation to all who believe. If you want to know God, here's the way to do it. Come to him, believe what he has said. Come to him on his terms. Trust in him. There's no other way. Paul surveys the whole of humankind. Jew, Gentile, sophisticate, barbarian, believer, skeptic. He shows how each of us have rebelled against God and gone our own way. Each of us falls short of the standard God requires of us. Because of this, we all stand condemned and guilty before God's bar of justice. But the gospel offers hope. The apostle unpacks how God has made a way for rebels to be reconciled, for the unholy to be made pure, for the sinner to become a saint, for the spiritually dead to be made wondrously alive. He even peers into the mystery of why people refuse the hope that God offers and how God overcomes that resistance. He ends these 11 chapters leading up to chapter 12. He ends these 11 chapters with a song that Sam alluded to on Christmas Eve and that we sang from earlier this morning. Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and inscrutable his ways. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. All of this, the whole package is what scripture in another place refers to as our so great salvation. This is the therefore of the appeal that Paul is making. Paul is not coming to us and say, saying, hey, dude, it's New Year's Day. Get your act together. Be better. Pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. He's not saying make a commitment and really mean it this time. Instead of telling us to, to do these things, he points to the finished work that Jesus Christ has accomplished on the cross. What he's done in turning away God's furious wrath over our sin and obtaining mercy in the place of judgment. You see, the mercies of God are what get us through the wilderness of life to arrive at our eternal destination. They motivate us by their beauty. They strengthen us by God's power. And they lead us home to his perfect rest. First of all, the mercies of God motivate us by unfolding and displaying the beauties of what Jesus has done for us. It's quiet. Do we have any children here today? Can I see some hands? Something's wrong. At this point, all of you should be raising your hands. I realize that some of you are professional children, but all of us are someone's child. I want to ask you a question. Have your parents ever gotten you to do something by making you feel guilty? Of course. <laughs> I love the honesty. Yes, I, I, I remember the, you've got to eat that there are hungry children in place X who don't have anything to eat, so Brussels sprouts are good for you. Ugh. You know, you know why parents do that? Because guilt is an incredibly powerful motivator. It works really well 
for a short time. After that, guilt begins to bring guilt in any other kind of manipulation, honestly, produces resentment and resistance and eventually rebellion. So what is the motivation that Paul offers here? Does he guilt us into following God? No. That therefore in this text is showing us that while we were still God's enemies, Jesus died for us. The innocent one took on our guilt and its penalty and gave us his innocence and its reward. The one who was offended forgave our offense and reconciled us to himself. The one who was alienated by our sin purified us and adopted us as his children. Though we are guilty, God doesn't use guilt to motivate us. Instead, he shows us mercy. He loves us. Do you feel unworthy of the love of God? Maybe you don't even believe in God. For you, this is just all self-righteous foolishness, things that people who call themselves Christians do because, hey, it's Sunday. Let me ask you a couple of questions. Have you never cried out for justice? Have you never been full of a sense of outrage at something that has happened? The Bible tells us that God sees every wrong and cares. It tells us that God will bring justice. Let me challenge you a little further. Do you only want justice for others? I know there have been times when I've seen somebody do something, and I'm like, God, hammer them. And then I realize, oh, wait, I just did that, didn't I? Without God, can there be any real forgiveness or reconciliation? Can there be any restoration between enemies in your system of belief? The gospel offers that. Paul makes it clear that there is nothing, nothing that you can do as a Christian that will cause God to love you less than when his son died for you on the cross. By the same token, there is nothing that you can do that will cause him to love you more than when Jesus gave his life. God's love for his people is settled. It is enduring. It is perfect. It is merciful. When you think, God, you can't use me. I mean, I'm broken. I'm not worthy. Think about this. Who can possibly accuse you? Who can possibly condemn you? Christ has died for your sins. Christ has given you forgiveness. He has reconciled you to God. Who can stand up and say, that doesn't count? No one. No one. The finished work of Jesus Christ drives home the mercy of God to us. Put it another way. When God looks at you, he sees his son. He doesn't see your sins. He doesn't see your, the ways in which you've failed. He sees Jesus in his perfect obedience, in his perfect fulfilling of every command that God has ever given. And he says, that's my kid. I love her. I love him. That's the motivation that Paul is offering here. Not saying, 
come on, do it yourself, but look at what God has done. Because of what he has done, we can serve. These are the mercies of God. How does it make you feel? Think about this. You can't disappoint God. It's just not possible. He already knows the worst about you and yet sees in you the perfection of his son. You are free to risk everything in love following and in serving God because he himself is your safety net. By the mercies of God, he delights in you. The joy that he takes in calling you his child is the motivation for loving and following him. But God does more than just give us the motivation. He gives us uh, strength to keep going when time is gone, when, when strength is gone. I remember the first time I took my family, the only time the entire family went to Shining Rock. I had four kids. Their ages were four to 11. Ruth, Rachel, Thomas, and Anna. And we went in on the fire road, which is about the only level trail in the, in the park. That doesn't sound too bad, but the day before, it had rained. No, it had poured. The fire road was not so much a road as a stream. Water everywhere. Water flowing down the road. Water flowing across the road. Water pooling on the road. Everywhere you went, it was wet. And some of you parents already know where this is going. Because there's a strange law of nature that says that if there is water, a toddler must find it and get in it. There's no puddle that can go unstomped. There's no stream that can't go unweighted through. So it didn't take long for our youngest to become absolutely soaked from the waist down. And at that point, motivation's not the issue. She's cold and hungry and tired and cranky. Motivation's not the point of that stage. It's being able to get the job done, being, having the strength to go on. And so Corinne and I carried and cajoled our cold, wet, tired, hungry, cranky kids back up the trail to the car. We were defeated that time. When we are lost or distressed or cranky, the mercies of God pick us up and carry us. When we come to the end of our strength, God's mercy gives us power to go on. I have a praying wife. Over the years, she has kept journals of God's faithfulness to us through answered prayer. What an encouragement that history is. But what about the prayers that weren't answered as we had hoped? What about the prayers, the things we have prayed about for decades with no discernible result? Doesn't God know? Doesn't he care? The mercies of God prove his love, his care. They provide strength to keep going, to continue praying, even when we feel like nothing is happening. When we come to the end of ourselves, we cast ourselves upon his mercies, and he carries us. It is his faithfulness, his unchanging goodness that keeps us praying, assures us that he does know, he does care, he does act. Faithfulness of God's mercy, so not only motivate and empower us, they lead us home. 
command portion of this text, grounded in the mercies of God, is offer yourselves to God. There are three words that Paul uses to flesh out what he means. What kind of an offering is this to be? The first is we're to be living sacrifices. Now, the church in Rome, both Jews and Gentiles, were familiar with sacrifices. You bring an animal to the altar, you kill it. That's the end of the sacrifice. Dead and done. But Paul has something in mind that's similar but radically different. Whereas the traditional sacrifice brings an end to the life of the creature so offered, we are to make a sacrifice that goes on. The the living sacrifice is just the beginning. The traditional sacrifice ended what was going on. The traditional sacrifice says, here I am, use me from now on. Now, some wag, not me, Jeff Rosinski, said that the problem with a living sacrifice is that it keeps crawling off the altar. And that may be true. But the point of a living sacrifice is that it can be made again and again and again. When Paul tells us to make a living sacrifice, He's saying, begin today, based not on your efforts, not on what you have done, but on God's effort, on what he has done. By the mercies, make this living sacrifice. It's not just a living sacrifice, it's also a holy sacrifice. And sometimes Christians get into trouble here because they think that holy means saint-like, like me. No. If you're a saint like me, I'll pray for you. To be holy has a number of meanings, some of which means morally pure, perfection. But the meaning in this case means to be set apart, to be dedicated to something. So a living sacrifice has been set apart to the use of God. The last thing that that Paul says about this sacrifice is not only is it living, not only is it holy, but it's pleasing to God. I don't know what your childhood was like. My dad and I had a, you've heard me say before, we had a troubled relationship. There were times when I was convinced that nothing I could do would please him. Praise God for when that reconciliation happened and that healing came between my father and me. But I praise God even more for the reconciliation that has come between me and him. When I do something and I blow it, God doesn't shake his head and rub his forehead and go, there he goes again. He looks at me and sees his son. He delights in me. When you feel like you have failed God, when you feel like your best efforts have fallen short, your heavenly father delights in you. So, you want to see what this kind of a sacrifice looks like? I invite you to look around. Watch Chris Lowe when he plays guitar or works with kids. Just look at his face. Look at Keith Gallagher while he talks about Phoenixville Refuge. It's almost like he vibrates. 
Stand in awe of the organization that Laura Williams imposes upon the chaos that can be this group of people. Listen to the care that Phil Diefendorfer puts into a mix so that we can hear everything during a Sunday service. Or watch something that Owen has set up for the live stream. Follow, if you can, Hattie Yotis as she talks to people before the service and after service and sometimes during the service, touching base, caring for people. This is what a living sacrifice looks like. And I mentioned these people by name. But let me tell you, they are not alone here. This is what one of the things that keeps me coming back to this church, seeing people who love God, who serve not because they are so wonderful, but because he is. Not to put the spotlight upon themselves, but put the, put, to put the spotlight upon the Lord they love. This is what a living sacrifice is. And it's better than any New Year's resolution that you could ever hope to make or try to keep. Are you stuck in the wilderness today? Do you feel lost and exhausted? No sense of where you are or how to get home? I appeal to you, look to the mercies of God. Be motivated by his grace. Be empowered by his love and led by his spirit. He will bring you home. How do I know? I see this table every week. I see the Lord who made himself the sacrifice. And he invites me to come. That's mercy and love and grace I cannot deny. Can you remember God's Christ's death and not think of the terrible justice of a holy God? Can you stand and proclaim his resurrection and not think of the hope that we have in him? As we come forward to partake of the bread and the cup in a few moments, I ask you to come forward with joy. Remember the mercies of God. Remember the mercies. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, you've shown us what love is. And honestly, it's not just in Christ's death on the cross. Then you're sending your Holy Spirit to live in us, to seal us into your family. It's in the promise you will be my people and I will be your God. Father, help us to keep these mercies in mind, to live by the mercies. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.